of Children podcast, a space for youth defenders. I have seen children who have been strapped by their wrists to the four corners of their beds and held in four-point restraints. I have seen children who have been handcuffed to the wall or to the floor of their room. I have seen children in bare solitary confinement cells where all they had was a, a hole in the floor instead of a toilet. We are Christina Kleiser, Assistant Public Defender, Kristen Anderson, Juvenile Law Attorney, and Kashana Lattimore, Assistant Public Defender. And we are on a mission to build our community of defenders and raise the level of practice we bring on behalf of children thrust into the delinquency system. With each episode, our goal is to bring the experts and other defender specialists to educate and inspire us to be better defenders each and every day we walk into the courtroom and to learn more about the policy issues facing Tennessee's court-involved children. We want a world where policymakers rely on data and science rather than their gut. And so we hope that this adds to their understanding. Hey, Defenders. Welcome back to the In Defense of Children podcast. This is Kristen Anderson. And in today's episode, we're going to be discussing a topic with far-reaching psychological consequences for the youth that we defend. That is the dangers of being held in detention and in solitary confinement. For any of our listeners who have had the opportunity to visit a youth detention center or a youth development center, as we call it, you know that these facilities are essentially just prisons for kids. For other listeners, this may be a startling realization. The question that we have today is how those conditions of incarceration impact the development of the children who are held in these facilities and what we can do as defenders to combat those traumatizing confinement practices for our clients. Today, we have the pleasure to speak with Mark Soler. Mark is currently the executive director of the Center for Children's Law and Policy, which is a public interest law and policy organization focused on reforming the juvenile justice system and protecting the rights of kids involved in those systems. He is one of the preeminent scholars on the civil rights of children, and he's taught at several universities and law schools on this very topic. He's nationally renowned for his advocacy for ending the solitary confinement of youth limiting traumatizing experiences for these kids in detention facilities and in developing alternatives to the arrests of children. We're really lucky to have him join us. So, Mark, welcome to the In Defense of Children podcast. I'm happy to be here. Thank you. Could you tell us a little bit about your background and how you came to be involved in this work? Yes, I graduated from Yale Law School. I worked for the chief judge of the federal court in the District of Connecticut for a year. And then I moved to the West Coast to San Francisco, where I worked in a street level socialist law collective. And then I went to work for a progressive law firm in Oakland, California. And then after that, I got a job at the Youth Law Center, first as the senior staff attorney and then as the executive director. And now you're at the CCLP. What exactly are your focus areas? I actually started CCLP 15 years ago, and we have three major focus areas. One is reducing unnecessary incarceration of young people. The second is for young people who are incarcerated to make sure that they're in safe environments and that they don't suffer any abusive treatment while they are incarcerated. And the third is trying to reduce racial disparities and promote racial equity throughout the juvenile justice system. In the last couple of years, we've adopted two other focuses for our work. One is community engagement. We see the future of juvenile justice as being with community-based services and programs, which can take the vast majority of young people who need supervision. So we're working on that. We also are working on lifting up youth voices, particularly those young people who've been directly impacted by the system. How does that tie into the work that you did at the Youth Law Center? I know that they've done a lot of incredible work over the years. So tell me a little bit more about that. Yes. When we began work at the Youth Law Center, we worked on two major things. One was, and these were to implement the Federal Juvenile Justice and Delinquency Prevention Act, which had been passed by Congress four years earlier. We were looking to keep young people out of adult jails. And second, we were working to stop the secure confinement of young people charged with status offenses. 
status offenses are behaviors which can be criminal for a juvenile, but are not crimes for adults, like uh, curfew violation or not attending school or being ungovernable. We did that work for a number of years. And then as we did more and more of it, we got more interested in the conditions under which children were held. And eventually we started bringing lawsuits over unconstitutional conditions of confinement. We brought lawsuits probably in 20 or 30 states around the country, alleging unconstitutional conditions in virtually every case we either won at trial or we reached a settlement to prohibit and end those abusive practices. That is a great segue into our topic. Can you give our listeners a preview of all of the reasons that we should be concerned about the overuse of pretrial detention? There are really a a number of reasons, and I think we want to start with saying that most pre-adjudication detention of young people is unnecessary. We have seen in jurisdiction after jurisdiction around the country, children securely detained for status offenses, such as missing school uh, chronically, for low-level property offenses, such as shoplifting, for low-level offenses, such as simple assault, which often are schoolyard arguments between kids. We've seen kids detained for simple possession of marijuana, in domestic violence cases where the dispute is really between the child and siblings or the child and the parent or guardian. We've seen a lot of kids held in detention for violating probation orders, even when their behavior was minor behavior. They may have uh, missed three or four appointments with a probation officer, or they may have gone to a party over a weekend and smoked marijuana, and then the next week they get a, a drug test and they test positive for it. They shouldn't do that. They should obey the probation orders. But the violations are not so serious that require detention of young people. We've also seen a lot of kids detained for very vague offenses like disorderly conduct, which often is in the mind of the arresting officer or disrespecting authority figures. In some jurisdictions, there are offenses for disrespecting teachers and kids have been arrested and detained for that kind of thing. We want to remember that under most state codes, detention before adjudication is only valid for two reasons. One, if the child is a significant danger to the community. And second, if there's a real danger, the child will not appear in court, will fail to appear in court. Those are the only valid reasons. Detention is not used to teach children a lesson. It's not used to try to make a point like that. It should only be used if the child will be a significant danger to the community or fail to appear in court. And all these delinquency offenses I mentioned, these are not significant dangers to the community. What do the numbers say about how these practices impact minority and disabled children? A major problem with detention is that there are significant racial disparities in the use of detention all over the country. We find, based on a lot of data, that young people of color, especially black males, are much more likely than white children to be detained for these minor offenses that I mentioned. And when detained, they are more likely to be detained for longer periods of time. And so very often, detention exacerbates the racial disparities uh, that are already existing in the system at the point of arrest. For the young people who are detained, there are a number of important consequences and concerns. So I want to talk about some of those concerns that you mentioned. What exactly are the psychological and mental health impacts of being held in detention? Personally, I can't imagine how traumatic this experience may be for kids who have never even spent a night away from home, and they're thrown into these cinder block detention facilities, sometimes without a mattress or a blanket. The experience of being locked up in a facility that is often very much like a jail can be traumatic in itself to young people. We also know that for young people who come into the system with mental health problems, and that is between 40% and 70% of the children who go into the juvenile justice system, for those children, the experience of being incarcerated makes them worse. And detention puts children at greater risk of self-harm. Compared to children in the general population, young people in detention are much more likely to self-harm and to try to commit suicide, and often they succeed in doing that. These children are often already the most vulnerable populations and often the furthest behind in schools. So how does the education aspect in the facilities impact these kids? 
being put in detention interrupts the educational program for young people. When they are in school, they have a curriculum that the teachers follow. When they go into detention, it's very common for the detention school. There is a school, but it often does not follow the curriculum. And it's often unable to follow the curriculum, either because of inadequate teacher resources or other resources for the school particularly for young people who qualify for special education. Often those young people fail to return to school after they get out of detention. When they get out of detention and later move on to new opportunities, hopefully graduate high school, get a job, does their time they spent in a detention facility affect their ability to grow into a productive adult and get those jobs? We worry about the employment opportunities for young people. We find based on research that young people who have been detained often have much less success in the labor market. It's much more difficult for them to get jobs. They haven't gone through the normal course of childhood and developed the right kinds of skills uh, to be able to get jobs. We find that young people who have been through the juvenile justice system, even if they have been detained and then released, that experience can really have an impact on them in terms of the job market later on. We want all of our young people to be productive members of our communities and taking young people out of their communities and locking them up for some period of time, often with other young people who have committed very serious problems, is not the way to help them to become productive citizens. All the young people who go into the system are coming back out of the system at some point. When they come out, we want them to have the skills to be productive members of society and not to have to rely on illegal means to even support themselves. How long does it take for us to see some of these psychological and mental health issues arise whenever children are in detention? Children who come into the juvenile justice system usually come with baggage. Substantial number of the young people come with a diagnosable mental health problem. Many, many of them come with learning disabilities. Many of them come with histories of trauma, physical, emotional, or sexual trauma. In facilities I've gone into, I've, I've seen facilities where 100% of the girls had been victims of sexual trauma, sexual abuse, and a substantial number of the boys had been victims of sexual abuse. When children go into detention, all of these problems get exacerbated. Many children suffer from PTSD or other kinds of behavioral consequences of the trauma that they have suffered. Being locked up in what is basically a concrete box, that's what they're in in a juvenile facility, especially when they're in their room. But the whole place, it is a locked place. In most juvenile facilities, you cannot go anywhere in the facility and not know you're in a locked concrete correctional facility. So it exacerbates it. When they come in and they're depressed, when they come in, they're going to get much more depressed when they're inside. If they come in with other kinds of mental health problems, those problems are going to be exacerbated. And it doesn't take a long time for that to happen. Once they go in and they are there overnight for a child who has never been locked up before to spend the night in a small room that is concrete and may have a toilet in it and not much else, that is a horrifying experience for the young person. Don't let them go through that experience. Try to keep them out as much as you possibly can. It's not a question of only the kids who are in for months at a time. Kids can have very dramatic negative consequences from being in detention for short periods of time. So I know throughout the pandemic, at least in Tennessee, most kids have been held in solitary confinement or have had room restrictions for all the way up to two weeks. I think it's five days now, but they were held up to two weeks before they were allowed to join the general population within these detention centers. I know that it's for their own safety during this COVID era, but how does that isolation affect children, especially during a pandemic that's already had such enormous repercussions for everyone's mental health. The COVID-19 crisis has been a very difficult situation for all correctional facilities. In my experience, in juvenile detention and juvenile commitment facilities, there have been much more careful steps taken to protect the young people and everyone else from the coronavirus, because I know that in many adult prisons, the coronavirus has run wild with hundreds of cases, depending on the side of the facility. In many facilities, 
the authorities have relied on holding young people in their rooms for 10 days to two weeks, but it doesn't have to be that way. The young people can be separated from the others, but they still can have different kinds of programming. They certainly can have activities to do. They can go out into the uh, day room areas at particular times, and then those areas can be sanitized before the next child goes out. You know, young people need exercise every day. They need to take a shower every day and they need exercise every day. And they can they can do that and they can be outside of their facilities, depending on how much space is available in the juvenile facility. In addition, there are some good pointers on handling this kind of issue that were developed by a number of public health specialists, physicians and other public health specialists in California. Their organization is called AMEND, A-M-E-N-D, and their website is amend.org. And although they particularly concentrate on jails and prisons, they uh, also have pointers for looking at uh, juvenile facilities. Another source of very good information is a group that has been formed with the support of the Langeloth Foundation, which is based in New York City. But this is a group called Unlock the Box. And it is a a group of advocates for people who are incarcerated, public health people, and others who are working together and have a a campaign to end solitary over a 10-year period. Me and my organization are part of that group, but if you Google Unlock the Box, you will get to the website uh, for that. And there are lots of resource materials there too, including materials about what happens during the COVID-19. Absolutely. And so you touched on a lot of points there. So let's unpack some of those. I know one of the first things that you talked about were, I guess, alternatives to bringing kids in and how we shouldn't be arresting as, as many children. So I understand that you are the technical assistance provider for the juvenile detention alternative mission out of Memphis. Could you kind of explain what that is and what you all are trying to do there? The Juvenile Detention Alternatives Initiative, or JDAI, is a long-term project of the Annie E. Casey Foundation, which is based in Baltimore. JDAI is a comprehensive effort to reduce the populations in juvenile detention facilities and much more recently in juvenile commitment facilities without jeopardizing public safety. JDAI has a series of core strategies that are applied in JDAI sites. JDAI began with five communities around the country starting and using these core strategies. Today, JDAI is in more than 300 communities all around the country. And the basic core strategies are developing a governing committee to oversee the work to reduce detention, collect and analyze data on the use of detention and the use of detention alternatives, develop detention screening instruments so there are objective ways of determining which young people are really dangerous to the community or really in danger of failing to appear in court, developing alternatives to secure detention, such as evening reporting centers or group homes or other kinds of community-based programs, looking at what we call special cases, the ones that keep coming up and are hard to solve, such as children who are put in detention for violating a probation order. In most jurisdictions, there is a straight order from the judge. If the child violates probation, then they can be taken into custody and put into detention. But very often, the child's behavior is not a threat to the community. There is no danger of the child not appearing at their court hearings, and it's unnecessary to lock them up after that. We also see a lot of kids who are taken into custody for warrants. That usually means the child has failed to appear in court and the judge has issued an order to take the child into custody. Or sometimes it's when a child has been assigned to go to a community-based program and they leave the program without authority. Certainly, they should obey the rules. They should not leave the program. But whether it requires the drastic step of locking them up in a detention facility is usually not the case. And so there there are other core strategies, including look at how long the cases take, because we find that if we can shorten the length of cases of children in detention, then they are more likely they're going to get out sooner and the population is going to be lower. We also, in JDAI, look at racial disparities in the juvenile justice system, and we look at the conditions of confinement in the detention facilities. Now, I know you've done some of that work here in Tennessee. Can you tell me a little bit about what you've done in Memphis? 
So what I did was I was the technical assistance provider for Shelby County. And I, over the last, it's actually 11 years now, I've helped them to develop all these core strategies in order to reduce their detention population. They have had a governing committee of JDAI actually for 10 years. They've been doing data collection and analysis all that time. They had developed a detention screening instrument, and we helped them to improve that instrument, and it's been validated several times. They had some things in the way of alternatives to secure detention, and I helped them develop a broader range of alternatives to secure detention. This really worked well in Shelby County. In the first year that Shelby County worked on JDAI, they reduced their population. What kind of alternative programs are we talking about? Yes, they developed a number of alternatives. They developed new electronic monitoring for young people who were pre-adjudication as a way of keeping them out of incarceration. They developed an evening reporting center that operates to keep supervision of young people, but without putting them into the detention center. The evening reporting center usually operates from about three o'clock in the afternoon, that is when kids get out of school, until the early evening. And so the idea is that a child is at home, they go to school, in school, they're supervised by the teachers and administrators at the school. After school, they go to the evening reporting center and they're there. They get a snack after school. They get help with their homework. They get organized activities. They get very good role models and they stay there usually until dinner time, and then they're taken home to their family. So at every time during the day, they're under some kind of supervision, but they're not locked up. And for most children who go into the system who are not charged with serious offenses, that is all the supervision they need. And often they don't need that supervision for very long. Usually it's a question of them being in the evening reporting center for a number of weeks or so until their behavior stabilizes and there's confidence that they can stop going to the evening reporting center and will obey the law after that. One of my questions then is when a child is arrested and brought into a detention facility, how long are we seeing them being held there in pretrial detention before actually being released to their parents? Let's distinguish the two types of, of incarceration. One, pre-adjudication. After a child is arrested, they may be locked up in the local juvenile detention facility. That facility is analogous to a jail. That is, it's a pretrial facility that's locked where the child is held. The child may be arrested, may be detained, and then may be released when they appear before a judge, or they may be released sometime later before their trial. A commitment facility or a post-adjudication incarceration facility is usually a state-run facility. A detention facility is usually a county-run facility. So the state facilities where children go are, are the state facilities where they may be committed for a period of time. And the times differ. Generally, young people who are arrested are held in detention for an average of two or three weeks in most places. But the range is very broad. There are many situations where children are held in detention for a year, 18 months, Often those are the young people who are charged with the most serious offenses, and either because of those offenses and the pretrial motions in juvenile court, or because they go through a transfer process where the prosecutor wants to send them to adult criminal court, those cases take a long time. Those kids are in there for an extended period of time, and detention facilities are not built for long stays. They don't have the kinds of resources to do comprehensive rehabilitation and mental health treatment for young people. Detention facilities are built for short stays. We also find that many young people are arrested, they are held in the detention facility, and as soon as they see a judge, which is usually the next workday, they are released. The judge, after looking them over, says, you're not a threat to the community, and I think you're going to appear in court. I think that your parent or guardian will provide enough supervision. And so they let the child go. To me, these are the cases that are the most frustrating. When a child is arrested on a Friday night and they don't get to see a judge until Monday morning, that child does not become any less of a threat to the community or any less of danger of failing to appear in court by Monday morning. 
That means that their detention over Friday night, over Saturday, and over Sunday is unnecessary. It's a waste of resources by the authorities, and it is an unnecessary traumatic event in the life of the child. With us not wanting to bring children in, even for a fleeting period of time, a weekend can be an eternity for a child. What are people doing in places like Memphis to prevent children from being brought in for a weekend or a night in detention centers? So the first thing that we need to think about is what to do instead of arrest. A child who comes into contact with a law enforcement officer does not have to be arrested. Even if the officer has probable cause to believe the child has committed offense, the child doesn't have to be arrested. Most places around the country are developing diversion programs, and there are a wide variety of diversion programs. But generally, it means that the child does not go through the formal process of arrest and detention and then going to court. Usually, diversion is a way for the matter to be put on pause for a certain period of time to see what the child's behavior is. In different parts of the country, different stakeholders in the system control which children get diverted. And so in some places, the police are in charge of diversion. Police officer comes into contact with the young people who they think has committed a crime. That police officer has a tremendous amount of discretion. That officer can simply talk to the child and say, you should not continue doing this. The officer may give the child a summons to appear in court. The officer may want to make the point a little more strongly and put the child in the back of their vehicle and talk to the child and say, I'm going to tell you seriously, if you keep engaging in this behavior, you're going to be in trouble. The officer has more discretion. The officer can take the child home to the parent or guardian. For many children, that's a much worse punishment than anything else because they're going to be in a lot of trouble to answer to their parent or guardian. I've heard the term diversion programs thrown around on a few different occasions. I want to be clear about what they are, what we're talking about here, because in Tennessee, we have informal adjustments, pretrial diversions, judicial diversions. But it's kind of my impression that you're talking about a different type of diversion. There are community based programs and services where a child can go and not have to go through the formal system. In Shelby County, they developed a center where the police can bring young people who don't need to be put into secure detention, and the young people can go and be interviewed by the staff who are at the facility. Those staff are looking for a number of things. One is the presence of trauma, because we find that so many children in the juvenile justice system are acting as a result of trauma. Often these children live in chronically traumatic conditions. They see violence sometimes in their families, but often in their neighborhoods, among other people they see. So they want to get assessed for trauma. The children and their parent or guardian are put in touch with community services. You know, a child who skips school on a regular basis shows that there is an issue about supervision of the child by the parent or guardian. But the solution is not to lock up the child in detention. That would seem to be the worst thing to do. That guarantees that the child's education will be interrupted. Instead, it may be that the parent or guardian needs some outside supports. It may be a young parent who really just needs some lessons on effective parenting, or there may be other kinds of issues or services that can support the parent. So these drop-in centers are often very, very effective, and they exist in states around the country and can be very helpful. This is all part of diversion of keeping the kids out of the system in the very first place. Then if the officer is going to bring a charge against the child, there can be a variety of alternative programs that can kick in. What kind of alternative programs are we talking about? When the child is arrested, when they're taken to the detention center, the next thing that should happen is that the intake people administer a detention screening instrument. The detention screening instrument is a short form that asks about the child's current offense. It asks about any previous involvement the child has had in the juvenile justice system. It asks whether the child has ever failed to appear in court before, or if the child has ever tried to escape from a secure facility. And the child gets points on the score sheet for each of these different categories of questions. Usually the current offense is the most influential. And generally the detention screening instrument aims to categorize the children in three categories, high risk, medium risk, and low risk. 
For children who are at low risk, that is who get low scores on the detention screening instrument, those children should be able to go home to a parent or guardian. And there may be some supports that are put in place, but they go home. Children who are at medium risk can go to an alternative program in the community. They may have electronic monitoring. They may go to an evening reporting center. In Memphis, they have all of those things. In Memphis, there's also a wonderful group home that is in the city that is a non-secure program, but it is a residential program where a child can stay for a day or a couple of days. This is very helpful, for example, in domestic violence cases. In domestic violence cases, there's a problem the night of the incident, but usually the problem is an argument between the child and siblings or between the child and the parent. That child is not a danger to the rest of the community. And what the child and the family need is a opportunity for the child to be away from the other members of the family for a short period of time. The child doesn't need to be locked up. The child can go into a non-secure group home and be there. And the next day, a case manager can come in and talk to the parent, talk to the child and work out an arrangement there. So these are all ways of avoiding putting children into secure detention. So medium risk kids can go into alternative programs and services. And then high risk children who have the high scores on the detention screening instrument, those are the children who should be detained. And I don't necessarily feel that no child should ever be detained. I think children who commit the most serious offenses, and I've been doing this work for 43 years. I've certainly, I've interviewed thousands of children, and I I certainly, a number of them, I think are dangers to the community. But the number is really quite small. And every time we go into a jurisdiction and look at the data on who the children are who are in detention, we find that a very significant portion of the kids who are currently locked up do not need to be held in secure detention. How does that tie into the work that you did at the Youth Law Center? I know that they've done a lot of incredible work over the years, so tell me a little bit more about that. As part of the Juvenile Detention Alternatives Initiative, my organization and the Youth Law Center in San Francisco, consulting with about 25 experts around the country, developed a very comprehensive set of standards for assessing conditions and programs and policies in juvenile detention facilities. There are hundreds of standards, but they're grouped into eight categories. And we have an acronym to help us remember the eight categories. And the acronym is the word CHAPTERS, C-H-A-P-T-E-R-S. And what those categories are, C is classification and intake, H is health and mental health, A is access to the outside world, that is mail and phone calls and visits. P is programming, that is everything the young people do when they're in the facility. The most important thing, of course, is their education program, but young people are entitled to have recreation and exercise in their facilities. Young people have access to religious services inside their facilities. Young people have groups that they have that may be organized groups in their units in terms of other activities. When young people are in detention, very often the facility brings in speakers from the outside, either medical or mental health people to talk to young people about their own health, how to keep their health good. They bring in business people who can talk about what young people need to know when they're going to apply for a job. So all of this is programming. The T is training and supervision of staff in the facility. Everybody who works in the unit, the staff who work in the unit, they're supervised by supervisors. Those supervisors have administrators who are above them. And then above all of them is the superintendent of the facility. It's very important to make sure the facility hires staff who have the right kind of attitude toward children. If they want to get the job to be able to give kids a hard time and enforce the rules to a punitive degree, that's not the kind of people we want working in juvenile facilities. In my experience, most people who work in juvenile facilities are really trying to help the kids, and that's what we want. When the staff are hired, they need to get training so they know how things work in the facility, but they also need training on how to de-escalate arguments that occur because those things are inevitable in a facility like that. The staff need training on adolescent development. They need to know the common mental health issues for young people, a whole variety of things that they need for training. And then there needs to be adequate supervision of staff. So that's the T. The E is environmental issues. Those are all the things in the environment. So that's the heat, the light. It includes the food. It includes the clothing the children wear. It's a big issue about whether children have to wear prison type of uniforms, which we strongly oppose. 
or whether they can wear khakis and t-shirts or knit shirts, which they do in many of the juvenile facilities, all of the environmental sanitation, hygiene, and things like that. That's C-H-A-P-T-E-R stands for restraints, but it's really all the things that can go, that happen when a child breaks the rules in the facility. So it's use of force, it's use of restraints, whether they're mechanical restraints or chemical restraints or physical restraints, holding restraints. It covers the use of isolation, of locking a child into their room, which is a form of solitary confinement. It also includes a grievance system where children actually can make the administrators aware of things that are not going right in the facility, and they can call attention of the administrators to these issues going on. And the E also includes uh, discipline procedures. When a child breaks the rules, goes through a due process discipline procedure, gets a, a sanction for all of that. And finally, the S is for safety. Children have a very clear constitutional right to be safe in any state-run facility. If the children are harmed in the facility, then the administrators of the facility need to answer for that. It's very important to look at the different kinds of ways that children can be harmed. Prison Rape Elimination Act, that safety, that protection from sexual harassment or sexual assault is a critical part of the S part of the chapters. So that's C-H-A-P-T-E-R-S. You mentioned that there are protections under PREA. Why were those implemented? What was the history there? The Federal Prison Rape Elimination Act was enacted when a number of organizations and leaders went to Congress and said, we are very concerned that there is forced sexual activity going on in prisons, jails, and juvenile facilities. A number of the leaders of that effort to get the federal statute passed were actually former office holders who had been convicted of crimes while they were in office and were sent to prison. Most of these people had never had any contact with the correction system at all. And when they went in and did time, they saw the kind of forced sexual activity that was going on in the correctional setting. And they used their influence with Congress to promote passage of the Prison Rape Elimination Act. There was a federal commission, the Prison Rape Elimination Act Commission, which held hearings all over the country on this issue. And then the U.S. Department of Justice promulgated federal regulations governing every secure program in the country, every jail, prison, juveniles, detention facility, and juvenile commitment facility. As I imagine that you visited who knows how many facilities to kind of collect data on what we are already seeing. What are some of the most, I guess, egregious conditions you have seen children in over the years? The most egregious and the most common problems we see are in the use of restraints and the use in isolation or solitary confinement. I have seen children who have been strapped by their wrists to the four corners of their beds and held in four-point restraints. I have seen children who have been handcuffed to the wall or to the floor of their room. I have seen children in bare solitary confinement cells where all they had was a, a hole in the floor instead of a toilet. I have seen young people who have been in facilities where the staff used tear gas or pepper spray, which is tear gas with the essence of hot peppers in the spray, where the staff have done that and used that spray on the children, even for very minor kinds of things. A child would not come out of their room when they were supposed to. I've seen facilities where the staff sprayed the children with pepper spray for not coming out of their room. Pepper spray is a very, very toxic, dangerous substance to use in a juvenile facility. There is no research, no research on the long-term effect of pepper spray on young people. And particularly, there's no research on the effect of pepper spray on children with pre-existing conditions, particularly mental health conditions or physical conditions like asthma. And then the other thing is the excessive use of room confinement, isolation, and that prompted us seeing it so often a problem in these juvenile facilities that we started a national campaign to end solitary confinement for young people. Could you outline exactly what solitary confinement is? What is our definition of solitary confinement for children? 
Solitary confinement is every involuntary placement of a young person in a room or cell by themselves, unless they're being put there to let them calm down when they have been a threat to themselves or someone else. And as soon as they do calm down, they are released. Unless that's the circumstance, every other confinement of a young person involuntary in their room is solitary confinement, in our view. Most states do not have a definition of a solitary in these terms. And we have been promoting our definition of solitary confinement, and we found a tremendous amount of support for our position. When we began our national campaign, which incidentally, your listeners can go to our website, that is stopsolitaryforkids.org. One word, stopsolitaryforkids.org, and find an enormous set of resources on solitary confinement for young people, including legislation and reports and one-person accounts. When we started, we developed a position statement, which states what I have said about solitary confinement, and we looked around for organizations to support our statement. And we got explicit support from the American Academy of Pediatrics, the American Correctional Association, the American Probation and Parole Association, American Psychological Association, Mental Health America, the National Commission on Correctional Health Care, the National Council of Juvenile and Family Court Judges, the National Partnership for Juvenile Services, which is the association of detention superintendents around the country, the National PTA. These are not you know, far left-wing organizations. These are mainstream organizations, but they recognize the danger and the trauma of putting a child in solitary confinement. Solitary confinement can have long-lasting and even permanent impact on young people. It is a very traumatic experience. And when I do trainings on this and your listeners, you can all try this at home. Go into the bathroom in your home, take out the radio, take out the magazines, Take out anything that can divert your attention so it's bare in there. Set the clock on your iPhone or your cell phone for 10 minutes and just sit there on the top of the toilet and do nothing for 10 minutes. It is, seems like an incredibly long period of time. And I have had clients in federal civil rights class actions who have been kept in their rooms for months, literally months at a time. And you can see the deterioration in them even after a short period of time, even after a small period of time in solitary. I want to make it clear that, that when we talk about solitary, we're not talking about 23 hours. We're talking about any period longer than it takes the child to calm down. So for some children, it might take an hour to calm down. It might take two hours to calm down. After that, there's something else going on there. And and something else going on might be that there's punishment going on. Many children are put in their rooms as a punishment for their misbehavior. And they are kept in there for four hours or eight hours or 16 hours or whatever it is. I've seen policies that allow for 24 hours, three days of solitary confinement for breaking rules in the facility. That is an inhumane policy and inhumane condition of confinement. So that sparks something else for me. Just a few weeks ago, I learned that Tennessee's legislature passed a bill that prohibits juvenile facilities from, quote, quote, seclusion for punishment or administrative convenience. What they call seclusion sounds a lot to me like solitary confinement. So the need for this new bill was pretty disturbing to me, especially considering that Tennessee law already prohibits juveniles being held in solitary confinement. So what's the difference between seclusion and solitary? That's a great question. And in my mind, there isn't any difference. In our Stop Solitary for Kids campaign, we tried to think if there was a way of of, of making a distinction. And we couldn't come up with any distinction that really made any, any difference. In our national campaign to end solitary confinement, we do not make any distinction between these various terms, whether it's called seclusion or isolation or segregation or administrative segregation or room confinement or solitary confinement. Those all mean the same thing. And what they mean is it's the involuntary placement of a youth alone in a cell or a room uh, by themselves. And our position on solitary confinement is 
that a room confinement can be used in some circumstances appropriately. If two young people are in a fight, the way to handle that is to separate them, and it may require separating and putting them in their rooms until they have a chance to calm down. That's not an abusive use of solitary confinement. That's good management of a facility. But the important thing is what happens next. In our national campaign, we advocate for a standard that says, as soon as the child calms down, that child should be released from their room and should get back into programming in the facility. So our definition of solitary confinement, which should be prohibited, solitary confinement is the involuntary placement of a youth in a cell or room alone for any reason other than as a temporary response to behavior that threatens the child or somebody else. So putting a child in as a punishment, putting them in for convenience of the staff, because the staff are tired of dealing with the kids and want them quiet for an extended period of time, those are all inappropriate and, in our view, unlawful uses of solitary confinement. I know that kids in certain detention facilities in Tennessee are able to ask for some type of waiver for them to stay in their room for the day. They don't want to go to class. They don't want to do certain things. And so the facilities allow them to do that, just stay in their room all day. Have you seen that in other parts of the country? What do you think about these facilities letting them decide whether or not they leave their rooms and what it does to them psychologically? I have seen that. And in a number of places, it's actually used quite effectively. You know, in my definition of solitary, it's the involuntary placement of a youth that is against their will. If a young person is having a bad day in the juvenile facility, in juvenile detention, and there are a lot of reasons why a young person could have a bad day in a juvenile facility. If a young person is having a bad day and really wants to be alone for a limited period of time, I think it can be a very good idea to give them a chance to go to a quiet room or go back to their own room in order just to calm down and be by themselves. But there are two things we want to be very careful about. First of all, the door should be unlocked so the child can come out of the room when they're ready to. And second, there should not be a minimum amount of time the child has to stay in the room. Very often, kids do need some time to themselves, but they only need five minutes or 10 minutes, and then they're ready to get back into programming in the facility. That can be very helpful. And the truth is, in a number of facilities, I've seen this in Colorado, they actually have very nice rooms where young people can go in, they have soft furniture, sometimes they have soft music playing, they have books for the kids to read. It's just a calm down mechanism, which can be very, very helpful for a lot of kids. Being inside a juvenile facility is very stressful. There are a lot of things going on all the time. There are orders to comply with all the time. The staff may not be patient with the kids and complying with the orders. There may be other kids who are promoting conflict with them. And so you can understand why a young person might want to just be away from everybody for a short period of time. So I'm not, I'm not against that as a concept. What if it's not for a short period of time, though? What if it's for weeks at a time that they're electing to stay in their rooms? Should we not be concerned about that? Is there not probably something else going on if they're asking to stay there for 23 hours a day? You bet. If a child is staying in their room for long periods of time, that child should see a mental health clinician. Truthfully, if the child stays in their room for longer than a couple of hours, a mental health clinician, either a social worker or a psychologist or psychiatrist or counselor should go see the child and talk to them about what's going on. Staying in their room by themselves for long periods of time voluntarily is a sign that there may be something going on. It doesn't tell us exactly what's happening, but that's when we want the mental health clinicians there because they're trained to listen and they're trained to look for symptoms that may be indications of more serious disorders. So those of us who are youth defenders in the trenches every single day representing these kids that are kept in these type of conditions, what can we be doing to combat this solitary environment that they're being kept in? There are a number of things that defenders can do to prevent their clients from being put into solitary confinement. First of all, you need to educate yourselves on what solitary confinement is and what the dangers of solitary confinement are. And you can get all the educational materials you need by going to our Stop Solitary for Kids website. Second, you can urge the judge in juvenile court to take a tour of the juvenile detention facility and look at the conditions that young people are in when they are put in solitary confinement, when they are in their cells. 
when I was litigating federal civil rights class actions, I would always ask the federal judge to come to the facility and take a tour of it. And we would go on a tour and the defendant's attorneys were always there and we would walk around the facility and the judge would see. And then I would say to the judge, just go inside this room. This is the room where my client was held for 30 days. Just go inside the room for a minute. And the judge would go in and I would say to the judge, I'm going to close the door just for a short period of time. Judge would say, okay. And I would close the door. And after about 30 seconds or 60 seconds at the most, I would start hearing. And the judge was knocking on the wall and say, okay, I've had, and I would always tell everybody, just stay away for another 60 seconds. So the judge was in there for 60 seconds. After 60 seconds, we heard, okay, you can let me out now. That was critically important because the judge then began to understand what that experience was like of being locked up with no stimulation in a bare cell with nothing to do. And at that point, I usually figured the lawsuit was over because the judge understood what we were doing. All juvenile defenders can do that. Invite your judge to go on a tour of the facility and put them in the room where your client has been. When I do trainings for judges, that's the first thing I say. Judge, if you want to be a reformer, go in and see the, the facility that you're sending kids to. Another thing that defenders can do is to educate themselves on what works to reduce or eliminate the use of solitary confinement. My colleague, Jenny Lutz, who was a former public defender in Philadelphia, and I wrote a report for our Stop Solitary for Kids campaign called Not in Isolation. It's a series of case studies of four different jurisdictions that were successful in significantly reducing or eliminating solitary confinement. The jurisdictions are Massachusetts, Oregon, Colorado, and Shelby County, Tennessee, where they have done an outstanding job of reducing the use of room confinement. That detention facility is run by the Sheriff's Department. There is a deputy chief who is in charge of the facility. She has done a fantastic job of in a facility that physically is not a good facility, but she's done a wonderful job of bringing in lots of programming, of training the staff, and of keeping the young people busy so they don't get into trouble and so that they don't use solitary confinement. We know from working with a lot of jurisdictions and looking at the research on this issue that there are a number of strategies that are very effective in allowing facilities to reduce the use of solitary confinement. One is to make sure that the staff have adequate training not only on de-escalation techniques, but also on adolescent development and on mental health issues for adolescents. Staff in the facility need to know that when a young person talks back to them, that is a developmentally appropriate thing for the young person to do. It is in the nature of adolescents to talk back to authority figures. When I was an adolescent, I talked back to all the authority figures in my life. And I'll bet everybody listening to this broadcast when they were a teenager, talk back to authority figures. That's why staff need to know about what adolescent development is all about. We should not criminalize young people for normal adolescent behavior. We should not put young people in solitary confinement for normal adolescent behavior. So training on de-escalation, on adolescent development, on mental health issues, on adolescents. We need to make sure there are sufficient numbers of staff in the facility. We have seen for years, and especially for the last year, we have seen almost every juvenile facility we've gone into has been short-staffed. Either staff are out for the coronavirus or they are out on some kind of other medical leave, but you end up with the staff often at the last minute being told they have to do double shifts. And we find that if a staff has to do a second shift, after a first couple of hours, the staff just have no patience with the kids. If the kids are going to give them lip, then they're going to send these young people into their rooms so that they don't have to deal with them anymore. So we've got to have enough staff in the facility that are there. Staff need to be trained on a variety of verbal and nonverbal techniques for de-escalating the training. There are a lot of de-escalation trainings on the market, but many of them are actually not very good. And so the facility and defenders can ask what kind of training does staff have for de-escalation? And there are very good ones which concentrate on talking young people down. The staff have to be the ones who are calm, who are the adults in the room, 
who will talk calmly, just as I'm talking right now, and so that the young people don't get escalated. We don't want staff to raise the emotional level of the conversation. We want them to do the opposite of that. We need to know that there is a good behavior management program in the facility. Most behavior management programs in juvenile facilities are based on punishments. That is, child breaks a rule, the child gets punished. We know from a lot of research that punishment is not a good way to get children to change their behavior. The threat of punishment does not deter children from misbehavior because kids aren't very good at thinking about the future consequences of what they do. What works well for changing adolescents' behavior is a combination of rewards and sanctions. So good behavior management programs reward young people for doing the right thing and sanction them for doing the wrong thing. But the sanction is the best sanctions are taking away the positives. So if a facility has a pizza night every Saturday night with a special movie for the young people in the unit, not allowing a young person to go to that pizza night is a punishment, but it's not a punishment of locking them up in their room. It means that they can't get one of these benefits, one of these incentives. So we want behavior management programs to have good incentives. It's also important for facilities to bring in mental health professionals as soon as possible. Mental health professionals are trained at listening to people and understanding what their problems are. When young people are having confrontations, when they're getting into fights, when they're acting weird and bad and potentially dangerous, it's the mental health clinicians who we want to talk to the kids because they can find out what's going on. It's actually very rare for a young person to engage in any kind of violent behavior for no reason at all. There is almost always some reason. It may not be a reason that adults agree with, but it's a reason that is important to the young person. So it may be that someone else, another young person in the facility or a staff person in the facility said something that the young person felt was disrespectful to that person, or to their family, or to their girlfriend, or someone else like that. That is a reason why young people engage in confrontations. But it also may be the young person went to court that day expecting to get out of detention, and instead the judge said, no, I want you in for two more weeks. That young person is frustrated, angry, coming back from court, and the first opportunity they may have for expressing that anger may be when they get into the unit and are with other people there. So it's important to find out what is going on with the young people who want to bring in these clinicians as early as possible. And defenders can ask the administrators of the facility about all of these different strategies. Are they using these strategies? If not, why not? If they need more resources, what resources do they need and where can they get the resources? And the final thing I want to say about that is it's very important to monitor the use of isolation of solitary confinement in the facility. Every facility should collect data on which young people go into solitary confinement, the reasons that they were put in, how long they were in, what got them out of solitary confinement, and how frequently across the facility solitary confinement is used during the course of the day, the week, and the month. And defenders can ask for that data to see whether solitary, in many facilities, solitary confinement is a standard part of the program. It's expected that kids are going to be put in their rooms for all kinds of reasons. The staff have come to rely on it, and that's what happens. Defenders need to find out if that's what's going on in their facility. Or is isolation only used in an appropriate way that is only used when kids need to calm down? What advice would you give defenders who learn that their client is in solitary? What do you do about it? They can absolutely they can ask for the they can ask for the records, certainly can ask for the records of what happened to their client when they were inside the facility, including whether they were put into room isolation or not. But in addition, defenders need to think about a public defender office is a collection of clients and the defender office can ask what are the policies regarding isolation in this facility? What's the staff to youth ratio in the facility? What are the trainings that are given there? And what are the data across the facility? Because after all, virtually all the kids in the facility are the clients of the public defender office. They can ask what are the data available on the use of solitary on their clients? I think that any defender who hears from their client that they were locked up in their room for a long period of time should bring that matter to the attention of the court and should ask the court to allow them to investigate what happened to their client 
And it may be that I know in some jurisdictions, defenders have brought their clients into court to testify about these conditions. I know in Louisiana that was done years ago to make sure that the court is aware of what's going on. After all, the judge is ultimately responsible for the welfare of the children. And if the judge is sending children to a facility that is abusing these children's constitutional rights by locking them up in rooms for long periods of time, the judges ought to know about it. And I've been in a lot of juvenile courts, and there are some judges who will care greatly about this issue, and there are some judges who won't care very much about this issue. I think that for judges who care about it, when you tell them that this is an issue, they will be motivated to learn more about what's going on. They're not going to condemn the facility, but they certainly may be interested in learning more about what's going on. For judges who don't care about this issue, I think defenders need to make a record in court about this. I know that not everyone is in a well-resourced public defender's office or a large law firm, though. So what can solo practitioners who are maybe taking indigent defense appointments be doing for their clients in these situations? Individual practitioners can make a record for their clients. Other defenders who have clients in the same facility can make that kind of record, and then they can move for habeas corpus or other kind of motion to get their client released or to get some other kind of relief. And if it's denied, take it up on appeal. Not many cases in juvenile court are taken up on appeal, but this is an issue that appellate judges, I think, are quite interested in because there is such a movement around the country to get rid of solitary confinement. I mean, after all, the American Correctional Association is the voice of jails and prisons around the country. They have a rule that young people should only be in their rooms during period when they are a danger to themselves or others. Otherwise, they should be released. That is very, very important and influential around the country. And of course, the National Council of Juvenile and Family Court Judges has called on judges to monitor these issues in the juvenile facilities in which they send children either for detention or commitment. You've talked about a lot of different resources during our conversation. Could you outline some of the places they can go to find some of the documents and information that that you talked about? Yes. So our website is www.cclp.org, Center for Children's Law and Policy, and you can learn about all of our activities there. To learn more about JDAI and detention reform, you should go to the JDAI website and platform, which is JDAI Connect. That's J-D-A-I-C-O-N-N-E-C-T.org. And when you click on that website, you're going to be asked, are you an employee of the Annie Casey Foundation or not? Click not. There's no shame in that. And that will take you to the beginning pages of JDAI. And it's a very, very comprehensive site. There's lots of information and there's information on all eight of the core strategies, as well as lots of other programs and initiatives that JDAI is involved in, and also lots of ways to contact others who are in the same situation. In order to learn more about stopping solitary for young people, you can go to our website, www.stopsolitaryforkids.org and navigate around the site. There is an abundance of information. We have a staff attorney who part of her job is to keep track of recent developments, recent court decisions, recent legislation, reports on this. There's just a tremendous amount of information on that website. The report that I mentioned, not in isolation, you can just Google it, not in isolation, and it will come up as our report. The entire report is about 120 pages long, but the Case studies of the four jurisdictions are about 15 pages long each. There's, of course, an executive summary at the beginning, and then there's a conclusion at the end. But that shows exactly how they actually did it. How did these jurisdictions actually stop using all this room confinement? And you can get a lot of ideas from that. If you could get one closing message out to all of our youth defenders who listen, what would that message be? Protect your children, protect your clients from being unnecessarily arrested by promoting diversion programs, by being unnecessarily put into the formal system. Protect them from going into detention so that at the detention hearing that your client has, go in with an idea, a plan for where your client can be supervised in a community program or activity or evidence that the parent or guardian will provide sufficient information. Many detention hearings are not really contested by The defense attorney, it's usually very early in the case, and it's less common that defenders come in with any kind of plan to get their client out. 
But getting your client out, keeping them out of detention is really critical. The last thing we want for our clients is for them to get arrested, incarcerated, and then get used to being incarcerated so they think of themselves as an inmate or a convict. If they start thinking themselves that way, you're going to lose them. And on solitary, get the judge inside the facility and get the judge to have the experience of being locked up in the cell. Mark, thank you so much for coming in. We really appreciate you joining us. It's been super enlightening talking to you about this issue, and we really appreciate all the work that you've done across the years to eradicate this practice and and improve the lives of all the children involved with this system. So thank you. Thank you. It's been a pleasure to be here. Defenders, that's a wrap for season one of the In Defense of Children podcast. We would like to thank you for following along with us on this passion project of ours. And we've worked really, really hard to bring you these in-depth discussions about some of the most critical topics in our field. So we cannot wait for you to hear what is in store for us for season two. We'll be diving into topics such as juvenile appeals, developmentally appropriate interviewing and counseling with children, decriminalizing childhood, and mental health issues that we face in the system. Finally, several of you have asked what you can do to support our program going forward. And East Tennessee PBS has graciously provided us the studio that we record in and the production team to make all of this happen. So you can make a donation to East Tennessee PBS on their website and leave a comment that it's going to support the In Defense of Children podcast. And on that note, a very special shout out to our team at East Tennessee PBS. That's our producer, Chris Smith, as well as Brett Allen, who recently joined us as our audio engineer. We really appreciate both of your work on this more than you'll ever know. Your endless hours of editing and all of your guidance in this brave new world of podcasting. We'll be back this summer with more episodes for you. And so give us a like on Facebook or Instagram for updates on what's in store and when we post those new episodes. And reach out if you have ideas for future episodes or if you have a topic that you'd love to talk with us about. Just shoot us a message at info at indefenseofchildrenpodcast.org or on any of our social media accounts. Look for us to drop new episodes very, very soon. I know you'll keep up the good fight in the meantime. 